Colossians chapter 3 is where we're turning this morning, Colossians 3 and verse 2 specifically. As I was studying and preparing it, even this morning as I was thinking over the idea, it is startling given the context. Of course, Colossians 3 or Colossians 2 ends with the idea of how is the sanctification process going on and how ought we to direct our minds and then how do ought we to relate to things of this world. This this chapter, even the flow of thought that we see at the end of Colossians 2 and into Colossians 3 is very similar to what Jesus said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This would be Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7. And he says certain things about uh, prayer and fasting specifically. And just reminded me, remember, we were talking about the self-made religion and self-abasement and the different ascetic practices of these false teachers that were trying to infiltrate the church in Colossae and worship of angels and different things. But even the, 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 the rules that they made, the three examples, do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, had to do with food stuff. And Jesus in, in Matthew 6 talks about prayer or the, the religiosity of it. It wasn't so much even the, the communion with God, but how did those prayers look? You know, they would go into the public areas and they'd, they do all these uh, things to be noticed by men. And Jesus says, don't do that. When you pray, go into a private place and pray to your father. He hears you in private and secret and, uh, be content with that. Don't try to parade your, your piety before people like the Pharisees did. But even as it related to fasting, you know, not touching certain foods and not engaging those things as a measure or an advancement on their own holiness, their own piety. You know, I don't eat this and I've, I'm showing everybody that I'm not eating today. I, you know, didn't anoint my head and I'm not taking care of my body. I'm just out there showing people my, my, uh, difficulties that I do on behalf of God. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. You want to fast? Fast privately, but don't don't uh, parade your righteousness there as a measure or as an advancement of sanctification to be made more holy. These false teachers are following very much a Pharisaical method. You know, put your put your piety on display and and make it related to external things. What you do, what you look like when you pray, what you look like when you fast. But Jesus here in Matthew six, but also in, in Colossians three. He says, don't be focused on this earthly stuff. Put your affairs, set your, your mind on things above. He says it in Matthew 6 and verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up yourselves rather treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's that treasure. The Pharisees, remember in Luke, uh, one of those small phrases in Luke's gospel, he says, the Pharisees who loved money, who were lovers of money, went off and did this other thing. They were so much fixated upon their material gain in this world, what they could gain by it, what they can avoid by it, thinking that somehow their religiosity was, was how they washed their hands or what they looked like when they prayed or where they were when they prayed. It's nothing like that. Jesus Reiterated. I won't go through this whole thing, but in, in Matthew six, but so much of his ideas there is it derives or compels the presentation of Paul here in Colossians two and three. Don't be concerned with things on earth. Rather, set your gaze, set your affection, set your mind on things above where Christ is. That's where our life is. That's where our salvation lies. It doesn't have anything to do with the stuff 
uh, 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 on Earth, the the material stuff, the food and the drink and and these other things. He ends the sermon or ends this passage anyway, Matthew six and verse thirty three. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Where we set our minds is a very important thing, and how we relate to the ideas of this world is a very important thing. Paul says ideas have consequences for good or for bad, and where you set your mind, where you allow your mind to settle and rest, that percolates or infiltrates the rest of your uh, behavior. He gives us great insight into what is what is the sanctification all about. Now, it's not to say when he says, don't be concerned with things on the earth. That doesn't mean we should go quit our jobs, sell all our possessions, go sit on a hillside somewhere and, and wait for Jesus to come. He's not saying that. He's not requiring us to withdraw from the world, even withdraw from each other and somehow commune with, with God individually or in an isolated fashion. If you'll notice, if you've read ahead, which is okay, you can read ahead in Scripture, Colossians 3, verse 5, he goes on and really into chapter 4, first several verses there, he identifies earthly relationships is how our sanctification is proved how our is proved and improved how we relate to another relationships is how uh, we are challenged and refined humbled purified in our own conduct and as we represent Christ on earth this is life changing it's life altering doesn't have so much to do with food and drink and these things those are destined to perish with use but you need to be concerned with eternal matters, spiritual matters. There's that Gnostic difficulty, too, between materialism and spiritualism that we talked about earlier as well. But let me read, I've hinted all over around it, but let me read this passage beginning at verse 20, uh, Colossians 2, down through verse 4 of chapter 3. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees, do not handle, nor taste, nor touch? which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom, self-abasement, or self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. This whole idea is how are we sanctified? It's not through rules. It's not through external measures. Uh, it can be evidenced by our external measures, but it's not, it's not based on those things. Our sanctification is based on our justification. We are declared righteous in Christ, and we have... <clears throat> The reality, if we have died with Christ, there are certain realities. If we've been raised up with Christ, there are certain uh, realities as well of who we are in him and how we ought to act as a result. Do you remember, it's been 500 years ago, a little over 500 years ago now, that Martin Luther, a monk in Germany, uh, nailed a bunch of statements on the door of the church in Wittenberg, not because he was uh, angry and you know defying. He wanted to invite people to a, a conversation, a discussion, a, a review of these ideas, and he gives the idea of of uh, repentance. In fact, really, this this whole these theses are all about repentance. What is the nature of repentance, and how does the 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 church, and in that day, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, the whole you know holy mother church, all that kind of stuff. How did that 
teaching of repentance differ from what the scripture said. Just these first three theses are so crucial, so important to realize that the expectation God has for us is not just a an event of repentance, but a continual process of repentance, of turning away from the things on earth, the things that trapped us, and turning to our freedom in Christ. Luther said, of course, translated into English, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, not just an event or an act, but an entire characteristic of life. Uh, number two says the word repentance cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy, something that's external, adding to Luther's words here, uh, confession and satisfaction, but the, the clergy that the, the priesthood has to arrange, um, it's not something that is entirely external, but he says, uh, and number three, it does not mean something solely inner either. So it's not just something external, but it's not entirely inner or internal either. I'll just read it. It does not mean it's solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. Wait a minute. Various outward mortification of the flesh. So when Paul is talking about don't be concerned with regulations, what you touch or don't touch, or what you eat or don't eat. That's not what the issue is. The issue is what's going on in your heart, who you are in Christ. That's what Luther is saying. Repentance is both a, a, an inner aspect, but it has to be proved in outer works. So think about it in terms of what James teaches. You talk about faith without works. Well, that doesn't justify. How, how can you evidence a, a changed heart if it doesn't change your behavior? But trying to change the behavior without a changed heart, it doesn't work. That's what the Pharisees tried to do. Jesus said, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. You look good on the outside, on the outside, but the inside you're full of dead men's bones. You've got to change the inside. And thankfully, it's not something that Jesus says, you got to do that by your own self. No, from the very beginning, uh, the, the promise of the new covenant as part of the old covenant was, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new mind that you will desire. I'll write my law on your heart, and then you'll do what pleases me, not because you have to, but because you want to. You are totally given. You desire this thing. Now, the battle is very real. You can read Romans 7 to realize, whoa, this battle, we're not, we've been raised up with Christ, we're seated with him in the heavenly places, but then we look to the side and look back down, and we say, what about that over here? Doesn't that kind of remind you of Peter? When Jesus said to Peter in John 21, Follow me. And turning, wait a minute, what part of follow me includes turning? Peter is just like us. So if you ever laugh at Peter, you ought to laugh at yourself because, you know, he, when he gets his eyes off of Jesus, not good things happen. We'll get to come a couple examples here later, but that's one of them. Turning, Peter looked at John and said, what about him? And Jesus said, I'm not talking about him. If I want him to be alive, to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the concern here is that we want individually to orient ourselves toward Christ. But even as a congregation, we want all of us to be concerned and consumed with who Christ is, setting our minds on things above, realizing that our justification is the basis for our sanctification, not the other way around, that somehow if we can clean up our act enough that God will like us, he'll accept us into his and his kingdom, and we'll have a relationship with him because we're good people. No, we're not good people. We need justification before the sanctification issue. We need to be declared righteous. We need to be forgiven of our offenses. And that's what Paul has been talking about all this letter in Colossians. 
If we could just look briefly at, at Colossians 1, is it verse 20, uh, 21, I think, where he describes this wonderful salvation. Of course, he's been talking about it all over the place. Remember how he said in verse 21, although you were formerly alienated in enemies and mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul has said it here. He says it again, this whole story of redemption in Colossians 2, buried with him in baptism and, and raised up and, and all that. He, he, he grounds the Colossians' identity in Christ, not based on what they do or don't do. That follows your justification, your being declared righteous. Don't try to reverse that thing. Don't try to put the cart before the horse. That doesn't work so well. Um, you, you need to to hook on, if you don't mind, hook on to Christ. He is the engine, not not you. You you connect yourself to Him. He will pull you along. That's why in these verses one and two, He says, "Seek the things above." He repeats that idea with a different command here. Set your mind on things above. He repeats that idea of things above here twice and then gives a contrast to it, not on things that are on earth. So he is speaking, of course, he, in verse 1, he defined where, what is that, those things above? Not just, you know, the clouds up, up high or the moon or the stars or anything like that, but beyond these things, the heavens that where, where God himself is, where Christ is. Two separate ideas, by the way, where Christ is, his, is his location and then seated at the right hand of God is his, condition or his position. He is there in heaven with God the Father, and he is seated, he is confirmed in his in his redemptive status as Lord of everything. He is the teacher, he is the judge, he's all those things we looked at last time. He is seated at the right hand of God. And because of his location, because of his position, that is where we need to set our minds. That's where we need to think about these wonderful things. The contrast is often made in Scripture. Here it's it's very evident things above and not on the things that are on earth. The contrast, beginning in, in Genesis 1 and going through Revelation 22, the contrast between heaven and earth, that which is above and that which is below. And of course, uh, Philippians 2 also describes those things that are under the earth. Remember how it says there in verse verses 9 through 11, the, the name which is above every name, that, that, every, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's no realm that is outside of Christ's lordship or of his salvation uh, possibilities. Everything is in his domain, in his realm. That's the big point that Paul made back in, in Colossians 1. Christ made everything. All angel, angelic authority, all human authority is under Christ, Christ is Lord of all. He is the firstborn of all creation. Not to say that he is the first one made, but the firstborn meaning the one who is in possession of everything, the one who has the hegemony, the, the, the sovereignty over, over all these things. It's Christ. So we not be, 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 we not, we need not be concerned with false teachers or any teacher that would say, well, Jesus is good. He's helpful for certain things, but you need to add to Jesus this and that and the other thing, or you need to, to continue. You know, this this was good for what for to get you started, but to, in order to keep going in your in your Christian walk, you need to add this and that and the other thing. And Paul says, no, be you are with Christ. You have died with him. You've been raised up with him. So 
Keep your orientation on Christ. Keep seeking those things above. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Jesus said it again back in Matthew 6, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That is the idea. Or as Jesus said in John 8, You are from below. He's speaking to humans. You are from below. I am from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. Wouldn't it be startling to realize or to consider that the things of this age, of this world, have some benefit to us to make us more like Christ? That maybe the the trappings of 21st century Western civilization uh, are somehow advantageous to us? That maybe the uh, 11th century uh, Eastern European saints didn't have, and maybe they weren't as, as advantaged. You really want to consider things. You might realize a thousand years ago, they're a lot better shape than we were in terms of our morality. And then every age has its own issues, of course. But, but in terms of the, the distractions of the world, I mean, good grief, we have the world at our fingertips, literally. Where's my phone? I mean, I can have the world right here. I can, I can watch what's going on downtown Tokyo, as maybe some of you have been doing in the last few weeks with the Olympics. You can see what kind of weather is going on in the, in the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, you know, the specific island. Is, how's, how's the day over there? You might be able to tune into a, one of those online cameras and see the beach and the shore coming. You might be able to see a, a seal. I mean, we have so much, not that those things are distractions, but they are distractions. When we, and they, because they carry the, the, the opportunity also for the teaching that comes. We can tune into teachers from well, maybe not North Korea, but South Korea, uh, the false teachers from uh, Southern Africa. We can listen and read books written by a heretic 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 3,000 years ago. There's, we have so much available to us. How much is it helping us? How much is it advancing? Paul says, set your mind on things above. Well, how can we even feel that? How can we touch that? How can we taste that? It's by faith. We want to realize how important faith is, trusting God, even though it doesn't make sense in our human wisdom, of course, we've you know, got everything figured out. God, you ought to take a lesson from me. Romans 11, didn't, didn't Paul say, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or how is God somehow indebted to you that he should do you know, whatever you ask? No, God is in the heavens. His ways are unfathomable, unfathomable, unsearchable. Uh, Isaiah 55 God says, my ways are above, higher than your ways. My, you don't even begin. You don't think the way that I do. That's why David, King David, back in the Old Testament time, was so much celebrated by God because he had a heart for God. He desired him. He would sing praises to him. He would, he would find his strength. You know, as many people read second, or excuse me, first Samuel 17, the, David and Goliath story, and they get lessons about leadership. They get lessons about, you know, slaying the giants that befall you in your life, or they give lessons about uh, uh, fitting armory and, and soldiery and all. It has nothing to do with all that. It has to do with David saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who blasphemes the name of the living God? That's what it's about. It's not about David being so you know, strategic and which five smooth stones did he get and which, how did he place it in his thing and, and where was he positioned. It has nothing to do with that. It has God giving the victory. God is the one. So we set our affection and we believe in him, even though it makes no sense sometimes. What is he asking us to do? Setting our minds on things above means that we cultivate a devotional life toward him. It means that we 
think about him as we read in the opening scripture. We remember, we remind ourselves. It's not enough to just remember kind of offhand, but we remind ourselves. We preach the gospel daily. Who is God? Who is God? Who am I in relation to him? What has he done? What is he going to do to me if I don't believe in him? What is what is he going to do now that I do believe in him? What is my basis for any hope in this world and in the in the in the life to come? This is where we give our attention. We want to have his thoughts. Isaiah 55 again says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, uh, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We want to follow after God's example and think his ideas after him. He repeats this idea from the previous verse, the things above, in contrast to the stuff that we, we see and touch and feel and interact with. There's that great issue that, that we need to direct our, our attitude, our perspective upwards. When he says, again, that first commandment, verse 1 says, seek the things above, have a desire orientation toward them. But then he says it's not enough to set that as your, your direction, but you need to discipline your mind. You need to think about these things. The, there are different aspects of this idea of set your mind. It has to do with uh, using your your mental faculty, your thinking organ to, to plan. It has to do with uh, making arrangements for the future. It has to do with an attitude or a disposition. Uh, just the, the way that we interpret life, the way that we think about things, the way that we place value, or how do we, how do we determine what is valuable in the Christian life? How do we determine what voices to listen to even? There are so many preachers out there and, and different uh, presentations about the scripture. How do we know? We need to set our minds on things above. We take our marching orders from the scripture. To whatever degree a, a teacher emphasizes or even speak or even opens the scripture, uh, that will help us to determine should we listen to this person or not. When we set our minds on something, that means that we give a serious consideration to it. It's not something that you know, I, th I think I'd like to go visit South America. And you think, well, when? I don't know, maybe this afternoon. Really? How are you going to get there? I don't know, I just I figure I'll just start heading south. What are you going to do when you get there? I heard there's good fishing. Where are you going to go? South America. Did I say South Africa? Whatever. The point is, I didn't put any serious consideration to it. I just off the cuff. Are you saying, I'm going to go to heaven when I die? Really? What are you going to do there? I don't know. It's going to be good. It's all better than hell. It's going to be better than this world. Better than what I have right now. Well, what do you, what do you, who's there that you want to be with? I don't, Jesus, I, I think he's there. He's something. Do you have, do you consider, are you carefully considering what these things are? It's not to say that we can ever figure out all these things. Isn't that 1 Corinthians 3? Is it maybe 2 that says, I has not seen or ear heard what, or has entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him? So we cannot even begin to understand. You know, Jesus talks more about hell than it is about heaven. And yet we need to set our affections on Christ who is there, who is seated at the right hand of God. Having a view on heaven helps us to inform our opinions on earth. You know, people have opinions about everything. Uh, what your favorite color is, what your favorite ice cream is. If you don't like ice cream, what your favorite pie is. If you don't like pie, what your favorite cake is. If you don't like cake, what your favorite donut is. If you don't like donuts, what your favorite cereal is. If you don't like cereal... God help you. I don't know what in the world's going on. But we have opinions about everything, politics, where you should invest your money, um, uh, what kind of clothing should you wear, what kind, how you know, matching your clothing and the tie. We have opinions about everything. How much does heaven influence those opinions? How much does 
heavenly aspirations, a disposition toward Christ and his enthronement, his sufficient sacrifice, how much does that inform your conversations? People are talking about, you know, I'm just hopeless and I, I don't have any uh, expectations of anything's going to change in my life. I'm just, I, I just, I guess I just need to live until I die kind of thing. Not in a, in a positive way, but in a negative way, just kind of re- uh, uh, um, resigning to the fact that this is how life is. I can't get ahead. You know, little guy can't get ahead. What kind of hope are you going to give in that way? Uh, how will you help? How will you minister? How will you give uh, a reason for living that is not based on this world? Do you realize Solomon, who is and was the wisest man on earth, not because he was in himself, not because his daddy gave him so much wisdom and education, but because he asked God, not for gold and, and the enemies subdued, no, but for wisdom. And God said, I'll give you that. I'll give you wisdom. And I'll give you everything else. Kind of reminds you of Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. I'll give you everything else. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And I'll give you everything else. Wait a minute. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Set your mind on things above. Keep seeking those things. Uh, one person said it this way. Such a heavenly or such heavenly values dominating the mind produce godly behavior. Sin will be conquered, and humility, a sacrificial spirit, and assurance, assurance of salvation, will result. It's the basis of of justification that then informs sanctification. How do we become more holy? How do we subdue sin? Remember at the end of, of verse 23, Colossians 2, he says, these things have no value against fleshly indulgence or the desires of the flesh. You try to manage it from outside things, it's not going to happen. You need to realize, remember who you are in Christ, and that will then flow out in your behavior. These things of food and drink and just the material stuff, uh, we, and that's a, a, a byproduct. Jesus said in Matthew 15, don't be concerned with the things that enter your body and then they have nothing more to do with you. Rather be concerned. It's not those things that defile a man. It's the things that come from the heart. What you, your, what you speak and what you desire and all these wicked acts come from your heart. That's where the, the battle lies. That's where our words, when we, when we speak to another, it's not just based on the circumstances. It's based on the heart. Remember the illustration, Answers in Genesis is used so many times of the two uh, castles fighting each other and how the, the Christian castle often fights at the, the balloons or the, the, the external circumstantial uh, arguments of the world, whereas the world is aiming for the, the substance, the base of the Christian castle, which is the authority of the Word of God, and undermining that and, and cutting, whereas we're not going to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue in that regard is... is uh, um, Man-made religion, uh, man-made uh, or, or evolution and, and chance and time, and there's no God, uh, atheistic uh, kind of stuff. And we need to be addressing heart issues. We need to be addressing these real things based on who we are in Christ, and that then will will result in in our behavior. Hebrews twelve and verse two talks about the this the same idea in different language. Uh, I don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews, but uh, various other folks have been recommended as, as authors. But Hebrews 12 and verse 2 puts it this way, that we fix our eyes, that we direct our gaze on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Remember how Jesus, is it in Luke 11, possibly as early as Luke 11? It might not be quite as early. That little phrase that we saw, Jesus set his face as flint 
toward Jerusalem. And they go, whoa, that's Flint? That's kind of stony, rocky stuff. Well, Flint and that economy was a very hard stone, a very, very uh, impermeable, um, uh, you, you couldn't really, uh, it was used as, as, you know, Flint knives and very sharp thing, but it was it's a very hard, determined, stubborn kind of a stone. Jesus stubbornly, but in a positive way, set his face toward Jerusalem. He said, I'm going up to die, going to die for the sins of, of man, but don't worry, three days later I'll rise again. He set his face as flint toward Jerusalem. That's what we need to do, setting our face as flint toward heaven, that we're not so concerned with what this world continues to offer or claims to offer. Again, I'm so much reminded of, of Christian or Pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress and how he was could have been and was, unfortunately, distracted by various other things or shortcuts to salvation, shortcuts to Calvary, shortcuts to the, the way that you can get your sin burden taken away. And he, and the, the evangelist, right, he said, you see yonder wicked gate? You see the celestial city? See that thing ahead? That's where you need to direct your gaze. You know, always, always straight, never to the right or to the left. Okay, so all these ideas. We seek first his kingdom, or in language of Colossians 3, we pursue or seek the things of God, and we set our minds on those things. Well, what are some practical things that we can do? Now, again, I, I'm somewhat reluctant to give these ideas to you because of how much we are given to uh, religiosity, to externalize it, to make, oh, these are new commands. Well, we can't do those commands. You know, do not hell, do not taste, do not touch. And I'm giving you a whole another set of commands. Well, these these commands are based on the understanding, right? We've just had a nice conversation together. At least it was rather one-sided. But the the substance, the, the, the basis of our salvation is justification by grace through faith. Christ alone, right? All those things. Our response to that, or how we work that out in our lives, is not an ought to, it's not a must, it's not a if you don't do it, then God somehow will not like you. This is our life. This is how we work out our salvation. Philippians 2 says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who, is, who wills and works for us, or in us, for his good pleasure. So when I give these suggestions of how does it, what does it mean, and what does it look like on a daily basis to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above, uh, I, I give that, that warning. I mentioned that opening illustration from Martin Luther's 95 Theses that we need to have daily mortification. I think that's, that's, that's a long word. Can you, what is that about? It means we need to die to ourselves. We need to consider, in fact, verse five, Colossians three says, uh, consider your earthly members as dead too. You know, dead people don't talk. Uh, dead people don't respond to stimuli. They're dead. And that's how we need to regard ourselves to the trappings of the world. But the world says, hey, look over here, look over here. And we say, I'm, I don't see it. I see Christ. And I'm heading toward Christ. Daily mortification of the flesh. Is, and this is not a New Testament concept. This is Old Testament. This is all through the Bible. Ezekiel 18, verse 31 says, Cast away from you all your transgressions which you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Consider yourselves dead to those things that trapped you. I mean, Ezekiel, if you were to read, oh, the heartbreaking description, when Ezekiel, of course, was in Babylon, but had a vision of what was going on back in Jerusalem, right? You know, real time through, like, almost through an online feed or something. No, it's through the Spirit, so it's much better. But he saw the wickedness that was going on in Jerusalem, and not just in the city, in the temple, and not just in the temple, the sanctuary, 
oh, wickedness going on there. And God says to him, cast away from yourself all these transgressions. Why will you die, O house of Israel? This, this repentance, this daily mortification of the flesh is also mentioned in Romans 6. It's a big place where it's mentioned, uh, verses 11 and following. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you can obey its lust and do not go on presenting your members as, as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, your, your bodies as uh, instruments of righteousness to God. Don't go on presenting yourselves as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Die to yourself. And then, of course, in Colossians 3 and verse 5, speaks about that. So a daily mortification, when we, when we consider ourselves dead to this world, we are alive in Christ Jesus. We, are, uh, we find our identity in him, and we direct other people. What the world offers is, is a mess of porridge, or pottage, somebody said. Uh, but what Christ offers isn't you can be satisfied even what God provides the, the the manna that God gave to the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years 38 40 years versus the manna from above or the the water that in John 4 Jesus at the, at the well in Samaria give me some water that I drink and then Jesus says I would give you fountains of living water if you just ask how much better is the living water that comes from heaven how much better is that heavenly bread, the bread that comes from it, which is Christ. Christ himself is that that we need, the balm for our souls. Well, so that's the first aspect. How do we do this? How do we seek first his, his uh, stuff? How do we set our minds on these things? Die to yourself. Second idea, ask. Ask for wisdom. Solomon did, and it worked out very well for him. Of course, he said, as Ecclesiastes 1, with increased learning comes increased sadness or disaster or just heaviness that you know more therefore you're responsible for more and uh, isn't it nice to be blissfully ignorant of certain things even paul said i desire to be wise as serpents innocent as doves i don't want you to be experts in wickedness i don't need you to read all about this you know what evil people do and their evil thoughts and jude wonderful way that he just compounds the the ungodly thoughts of ungodly people and ungodliness and he says it two more different times i think they're toward the end of his letter but we need God's wisdom, not the wisdom characterized by the world, but the wisdom from above. That was a big issue in the Colossian church, right? Because Paul said, don't listen to those who are very persuasive. Sound, oh, Their teaching sounds just oh, amazing and new and thrilling to my heart. And Paul says it's empty. It is deceptive. It leads you away from Christ. And it doesn't just lead you away into freedom or abandon you. It captivates you which is to say it makes you its captive. Don't be a captive of anything but Christ. You want him as your master. This asking for wisdom is a prayer. A lot of times when Paul prays for the churches to whom he writes, he has a prayer at the beginning of his letter. There's one exception, Galatians. He doesn't have a prayer for them. He just gets right into excoriating them and says, what is this? How are you foolish? And But in Colossians he does. He says, I pray we have prayed that you would be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. John talks about it, uh, and you know, Colossians one twenty eight talks about it. Colossians two talks about him being the the the, the container, the the resource of all wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Christ himself being that one. James, the half brother of Jesus, the one who probably, if you if you just put the ideas together, Jesus was 
whenever Joseph, his earthly father, died, Jesus, being the oldest son, would be kind of the, the male figure, male leader in the family. And James, a younger brother, would have heard the, the family devotions, if you will, from uh, Jesus, his brother, and realizing so many different things that James says in his, you know, the book of James, would be similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, or different parables that he told, or uh, the contrast, the the, uh, re the reproof of the wicked, uh, or not the wicked, but the uh, well, of the wicked, but of the rich people, and don't rejoice in your wicked, your riches. Uh, you should empty or mourn and, and weep for those things. But James one verse five says, "If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him." So, a couple of things there. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God to help you know certain things. And again, wisdom is can be described various ways. One, one way would be to say, it is the power to know what God wants me to do and then do it. To know what God wants me to do and not do it, that's not wisdom. That is what James, what James would say later in, the, in this letter, James 1, whatever. Uh, you, you, you're reading the scripture, it's like looking into a mirror and then walking away and forgetting who you just saw. You you don't do that. You look into the mirror so you can change what's going on. So you can modify your hair or your brush your teeth or or whatever whatever thing you need to fix. But to look at the law, the perfect law, and then to walk away from it and not do what it says. Other places in scripture says if you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, that is sin. And Jesus would say, Blessed if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So wisdom is the power of knowing what God wants me to do and then doing it. But it says that God gives generously, not just a little bit. I'll give you a little dose of, of wisdom and that you should be satisfied with that. We need as much wisdom from God as we can get, which is why we need to be immersed in his word. And notice it says he gives without reproach. He doesn't, it's not like, you know, you're in a classroom setting and you raise a question, raise a, your hand and ask a question and the teacher, the professor just excoriates, just just embarrasses you. You are asking what a silly question. Don't you know that? Haven't? Are you a graduate student? You don't even know how to do this. God's not like that. He gives without reproach. For the humble heart, the one who says, "I don't know," teach me, versus the one who says, "I know everything." God, what what you, what you got for me? The different approach of that. Remember Isaiah sixty six. To whom does God look? The one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at His word who wants, who, who yearns after God's instructions. God, I need your wisdom. I need your perspective. This world is so tricksy and deceptive, and I don't even know what to believe sometimes. Help me. Anchor me in your word. If you need wisdom, ask other places we could look at. A third idea. What does it mean to uh, seek his, seek the things above, set our minds on things above? It means that we renew our minds. Romans 12 and verse 2 says, be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4.23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians 3 and verse 10 has a similar idea. You've put on the new man who's being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. There's a key connection. Of course, the, the mind, the, the knowledge, the intellect, the, the seat of, you know, it talks about the heart, which is a seat of emotions, a seat of volition, the seat of affection even. Everything that we are is consumed, and we want to renew that. We have been renewed, but we need to consistently renew that idea. Wouldn't it be nice? I don't know if it would be nice or not to, to take one shower a year. Now, maybe some people do that. Maybe some people used to do that. Even Jesus said in uh, 
John 13, where if you've been, if you've bathed your body, you only need to, to, you know, wash your feet, wash your hands, wash your head kind of thing, and you'll be fine. Well, no, we need a, a, a consistent renewal of our minds. We, we forget things. You forget things more. I remember my grandma, she was getting older. She says, my forgetter is working overtime. I, I can't remember things. I can't, maybe some long-term stuff, but we need to remind ourselves of these things. Remembering is not a passive activity. It is a, an active, conscious choice that we remind ourselves. Who is God? What has he done for us? Remember the, the peril of the time of the judges is that there was a generation who rose up after Joshua and all that generation who did not know God or the wonderful things that he'd done for Israel, bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. How do we do these things? How do we renew our minds? Well, we meditate on scriptures. Fourth idea, or third, fourth, whatever we're up to. Meditating on the scriptures. Joshua 1 and verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous, then you will have success. This book of the law. Of course, at that time, it was the first five books of Moses. Not much more than that. And yet, this book of the law will give you a prosperity, make you prosperous, and you will have success thereby. But when you meditate upon it, there are so many different aspects in today's world about meditation. In this regard, meditation is filling your mind with Scripture. It is musing about it. You know, there's this word amusement, which to muse. I looked this up because this is important, is to become absorbed in thought, especially to think about something carefully and thoroughly. So when we are musing about something, when we are meditating, we're, we're probing the depths, we're asking questions, we're looking at, we're analyzing from different perspectives. We say, wow, God is great. God is so good. And what does that even, how does that, what does that look like? How is God good in this situation? How has he proved himself faithful in that situation? How did he prove his love to me in this certain scenario? Or take it out of your perspective, how did he prove his his kindness to those, I don't know, those five missionaries slain in, in the jungles of Ecuador back 60-some years ago, 70, well, almost 70 years ago? How What is God doing there? Well, our perspective over the last 70 years proves or shows maybe some aspect of what God was doing there. God is redeeming a people for his own possession. But when we think about things, these things, when we meditate upon God's word, uh, we we find delight. In fact, Psalm one verse two says it's the contrast between the you know don't have our kids recite the scripture. Psalm one, uh, don't stand in the pathway of sinners, nor uh, uh, sit. Well, I missed one. Don't walk in the pathway of sinners, nor st sit. St read Psalm one verse one. But Psalm two verse two says that we uh, delight in the law of Yahweh, and in his law, he meditates day and night. Wow, we meditate, we muse, we probe the depths of, we are absorbed in thought about these things. We give uh, careful inquiry and search to God's truth. As we meditate upon God's word, specifically, we need to focus on, meditate on God's person and his work. I'm looking at various scriptures. Psalm 77. I remember God, and I am disturbed, I muse, and my spirit faints. I shall remember the deeds of Yah, or the, the shorted na shortened name of Yahweh. Surely I remember your wonders of old. So it says, I remember the deeds of Yah. I will meditate on your works and muse on your deeds. 
Psalm 104 says, I should be glad in Yahweh. My musing, may let my musing be pleasing to him. And other scriptures as well talk about meditating upon God's person and work, who he is and what he's done. Just a few more ideas and we'll be done. We want to dedicate to an intellectual pursuit to know him better. An intellectual pursuit. Not merely intellectual, but definitely has a component of intellectuality, to coin a term maybe. R.C. Sproul, who was so much given to uh, knowing God, loving God, delighting in him, he said, if we want to love God more, we have to know him more deeply. And the more we search the scriptures and the more we focus our mind's attention on what, who God is and what he does, the more we understand just a tiny little bit more about him and the more our souls break out in flame. We have a greater ardor to honor him. The more we understand God with our minds, the more we love him with our minds. He goes on and describes about uh, leading us to praise, honor, and worship him, and then, of course, to obey him. Remember Ezra back in the Old Testament, that he, it is said of him, Isaiah, uh, Ezra 7, verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So is that, that com commitment, that devotion to study, to do, or to practice, and then, of course, to teach others to do the same. Another example, another um, practice, I guess we could say, of setting our minds on things above is to examine ourselves. Whoa, what kind of a mess am I? Psalm 26, verse 2 says, Test me, O Yahweh, and try me. Refine my heart and my heart. Remind my mind and refine my mind and my heart. Psalm 19, verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 139, usually celebrated, and rightly so, as a, uh, a hymn or a, a, a statement of God's work in the womb, making, you know, uh, making children in the womb. But he says at the end of that psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And of course, the New Testament talks about examining ourselves and so forth. We need to evaluate doctrine. Not every doctrine that is heard in the church is worth hearing in the church or even in the world. We need to examine all things and hold fast that which is good. We need to uh, hate, in fact, Psalm 119, the great celebration of God's word. Psalm 119, verse 104 says, From your precepts I get perception, or the ability to discern things. Therefore, I hate every false way. It is an abomination. I, de I deem your precepts concerning everything to be right. Verse 128 says, uh, Therefore I hate every false way. Jesus says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing and so forth. We need to teach others, as Ezra did. This is how we set our minds. We teach others. It's not just, we don't want to keep it to ourselves. We want to have other people share this perspective to uh, be single-minded in, in God's uh, truth and his working that out in our daily lives. Final idea here, how do we set our minds? We stand firm. Throughout this letter in Colossians, Paul says, you need to continue. I read it earlier in Colossians 1, verse 23. If you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard. Uh, chapter 4, verse 12, it talks about Epiphras who was probably the founding uh, pastor in that church. And he says he always strives for you in his prayers that you may stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testified for 
I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for the others in your neighborhood. So stand firm in the faith. Don't be carried aside to this, that, that other thing. I mentioned Peter. I'll close with Peter's example. Uh, I mentioned Matthew, or no, I mentioned John uh, 21 when, when Jesus said, follow me, and Peter turning did this other thing. But do you remember in Matthew 16, when Jesus first was telling, of course, he asked the question, who do men say that I am? And Peter is the one who replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, you're, you're right, and, you, and all that kind of stuff. But then, he, then Jesus began to say, I'm going to Jerusalem, going to suffer many things in the hands of the scribes and Pharisees and be killed or crucified and three days later I'll rise again. And Peter said, never, Lord, this will not happen. Which is to say even Peter's not going to let it happen. I'll not let this happen. And what did Jesus say? Oh, you're very kind, Peter. I appreciate your sentiment. I pre you know, you're my right-hand man. I, what, what would I do without you, Peter? Whoa, Jesus did, did not... Mm -mm. Get behind me, Satan. But why? Peter, you are setting your mind according to the earth, according to the human perspective. You don't understand what's going on and not setting your mind on what God is teaching. But even what I just said, I am going. And you said, no, no. What about that time, last example, when Peter was on the boat, stormy night and all this kind, and then Jesus walks on the water over to them. And they were terrified and all this thing until Jesus said, it's me. And then Peter says, if it's you, call me out and I'll, I'll join you. And Peter did. He was walking on the water. Y'all ever done that before? I mean, that's extraordinary. Supernatural. As long as Peter had his eyes fixed on Jesus, what happened? Good. He was above the water. When he was distracted and looked at the wind and the waves around him, what did he start to do? right down in the water. And Jesus came and pulled him up. Wow, Jesus is standing on the water. I mean, phenomenal. That's just amazing. And pulls him out of the water and walks into the boat. Amazing. What is the issue? Where's your perspective? Where are you setting your mind? What are you filling your mind with? What is going on? How are you interpreting life? How is that then informing your practice of salvation? How you work this out in your daily lives? Because we are in Christ, because we are have died with him because we are raised up with him. We have a different foundation from everybody else outside of Christ in the world. We need to stand firm on that, to stand as Jesus did, with a hand reaching down to those who are overwhelmed by this world. And we reach down in authority, not our own authority, but the authority of Christ and his word, and we pull them out of that. Jude talks about that as well. Uh, pluck as brands from the burning kind of thing. We are out there rescuing on a rescue mission just as Jesus has done for us. This is life-changing, and we're just getting into this, this practical section of Colossians, how we can work out our salvation to God's glory and for our good. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your wonderful word and how you are just uh, so much teaching us and giving us great insight into what it means to follow Christ. We are grateful that we have a salvation that is secure. It is not something that we need to somehow drum up or improve, but something we just need to work out, uh, act out in, in, in a consistent manner uh, based on what you have done for us. Please help us. We are so much distracted and uh, disillusioned by what the world uh, says and claims and offers and speaks and yells and demands of us. We pray that we would not be fearful 
that we would stand firm on your gospel, uh, stand firm on Christ. There is no other uh, name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or as Paul said in, to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That is the truth. The gospel changes our lives. Please help us to live that out every day. Please save and sanctify for your glory. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.